of the all of the choices that we've made even this week so many of them are 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 really outside of of your story father but you can redeem you can buy back you tell us you forgive us you you cleanse us of all unrighteousness as we come to you and ask for forgiveness god because of christ's death you're just and you do it because of your justice god that's what we rely on because our stories are so just scattered with mistakes and errors and sin. Thank you, Father, that you write us new stories. Thank you for the things that are ahead of us in this week that we have not yet encountered. Lord, that you see everything around the corner. Would you empower us to face, to deal with whatever difficult situations, God, the celebrations as well as the heartbreaks that face us. Empower us by your spirit, God, to live the life as followers of Jesus, no matter what might come our way. Help us to be faithful heralds, proclaiming the God who is the great story writer. And we thank you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, take a minute before you're seated. Greet people around the table. Make sure you know everyone's name. Grab a name tag and have a seat. Well, good evening, guys. Uh, welcome to our Wednesday night. I, I, I missed uh, missed you guys last week. I, I I got a horrible sickness like a little over a week ago, and it was bronchitis and pink eye and ear infection and upper respiratory infection. It was just I've been saying like from here to here, I was really really sick. <clears throat> but um, and so I lost my voice. Um, Sunday night, I'm, I'm, I'm whispering, and so just a huge thanks to Dr. Matt Hickey. I called him Monday afternoon, and no, oh, I didn't call him. I couldn't talk. I texted him, <clears throat> and I just and I just said, "Hey, is there any chance you could speak? I just don't know if I have my voice back. I'm glad I did because I had absolutely no voice. So I'm really always always so thankful for what a great teacher um, Matt is, what a great communicator, also just what a good friend he is. How, how he's willing to step in kind of in those last minute, last minute scenarios. Um, I want to also thank you guys for this stuff. Like I, I've heard people say like in the back, they're like, you see this like homemade cookies and all this phenomenal stuff back there. And we put kind of a little call out a few weeks ago to say, hey, if you guys want to donate, if you have the, the gift of baking and some of you guys have stepped up in awesome ways. And how many of you appreciate that? Yeah. OK, I do, too. I do too. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for just for um, plugging in in, in so many different ways. <clears throat> hey, um, first thing, uh, as we begin, I want you to take a second and, well, three minutes, and turn to your table. And I want you to talk about this, this question for just three minutes. So just take a couple seconds each. Um, wh- what was the best surprise you've ever pulled off? Maybe, maybe it's like a, you know, a... Uh, a proposal or a you know birthday surprise or something like that, or a time that someone surprised you. Okay, what's what's the best surprise that you ever pulled off, or the or the best time that someone ever surprised you? Okay, talk about that at your table for three minutes, and then we'll pull back together.
Okay. Sounds like some good stories out there. There's a lot of good buzz. Um, you ever think about this? You ever seen Jesus amazed or surprised in the Gospels? Like it, if you've ever read through the Gospels and you think about any time when Jesus was surprised, when he was amazed. I heard someone point out once that, and I think this is accurate, the only time that you ever see Jesus amazed or surprised is by people's faith could be could be like huge faith like big faith really really trusting him or or it could be just like why why don't you trust me why don't you have faith in me but but jesus always seems to be impressed when people believed him for what he said just took him took him on his word i think this is true for us as well isn't that true i don't don't you love stories about people who, who just trust God against all the odds. I mean, I love hearing from Bob and Tim and Justin and our, and our youth department, our, our Timberline Student Ministries, these stories of, of teenagers who decide to live out their values in school, uh, believe God for his promises, despite just, just all of the challenges, all the social challenges with that. Or I think about times that, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've gone to the hospital and there's been a family that I'm going to visit, and and as I'm as I'm driving there, as I'm walking in, I'm trying to think of like, okay, what's you know, like what do I have to say? They're facing huge, huge challenges in their life, and I'm thinking of what to say. And I walk in and, and I meet with this family, and their faith is just like resolute. They've got this huge, huge faith. It's it's like almost unwavering, and they're trusting God. And I and I'm just blown away, and I walk out more encouraged than I think I encouraged them. And I driving home thinking, how can they let me be a pastor, even? Because these people's faith is just it's so resolute. And I think I'm more impressed by the kind of faith that can handle a no from God than one that kind of seems to think that it can twist God's arm into even kind of a getting a yes out of Him. 
And in this series, we're looking at these different encounters that, that Jesus has with people where, where Jesus's answers to the big questions of life are, are shocking. They're kind of world changing. They kind of overturn people's worldviews in a lot of way. And tonight specifically, I want to look at something that Jesus taught all throughout the Gospels, but we'll look at kind of one event here, one account about faith. I mean, faith plays a huge role. It doesn't matter what worldview you're a part of, what religion you're a part of, what relationships you have. Faith is an indispensable element of just human relationships with other people. Um, a lot of the accounts we've been looking at have been in the Gospel of John. If you were to turn to the very end of the Gospel of John, the second to last chapter, the, the uh, John kind of gives his purpose statement. Not all authors do that. He does it here. It's kind of nice. He's saying, here's, here's my, my, my purpose in writing this book. And in the last chapter, chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Jesus performed many other signs. There's like different signs. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about Jesus. Uh, or John says these are signs kind of pointing to something else, these different miraculous events. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Which are not recorded in this book, he says. But, he goes on to say, these, the particular ones that I pointed out, John is saying, I have written them to you that you may believe. That's that faith thing there. I wrote these so that you would believe in Jesus as Messiah, as a son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. And so, and so a lot of times people say, okay, th- John's purpose throughout his whole gospel is these two themes of kind of faith and then eternal life. Or if you kind of combine those two things, we could say he's talking about the kind of faith that leads to life. What we're calling tonight a life-giving faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? And if you have your, your outlines, we're going to just kind of go through. There's a couple points in there <clears throat> that we'll go through this evening. But l- look at John chapter 4. With me. This is this is the particular account I want to look at tonight. If you have your Bibles or your iPads or smartphones, open them up and go to John chapter four, verse forty five. We read this. When he, Jesus, arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana and Galilee. That's where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come to heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household Believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, what I want to do tonight is <clears throat> just make five observations about this. If you want to fill these in as we go, this is in your outline there in your bulletin. Five, five observations. The first one is that life-giving faith starts with 
your reason. Life-giving faith starts with your reason. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, why would he do that? Why would he come to Jesus, this royal official? Well, he had heard reports. The very first verse that we read, verse 45, tells us that Jesus had been in Jerusalem, performed many miraculous signs. His, his status is growing. His, his followers are growing because people are hearing about this miracle worker. And then they had been there for Passover. So they had gone back to their hometown in Galilee. People had heard these different things. People in Jerusalem had come back to Galilee telling others. So this man would not have come to Jesus unless he had heard the reports, unless he had weighed them carefully, unless he had listened and thought about them and then chosen to believe them. Maybe maybe some of his closest friends had been there. Maybe some of his closest friends had actually seen they had been eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to some of these miraculous events that, that Jesus had done. But the point is this. This man starts with thinking. He starts with his reason. Most of the things... That, that you and I believe, we believe on the basis of authority. Uh, epistemologists, people who study knowledge, they will tell you this. The vast majority of the content of what you and I believe is, is believed on the basis of authority, which is, this, you know, have we been to the moon? Well, I haven't been there, but, you know, historians have told me. And, uh, you know, what happened to Abraham Lincoln? Well, I wasn't there, so historians. Have, so I listen to historians, and I, and, I, and I listen to what they say. I weigh the evidence, and I either accept it or I reject it, or I listen to scientists, and the same thing where I read books, or I've had teachers, you've had professors. And we weigh and we think about what is true and what's rational and what's accurate and what's coherent and what matches the external world and all of these different tests of, of knowledge. And then we either believe them or we reject them in some way before we decide what to believe. And I want to say a little bit more about this later in the night. But what we see here is that faith always starts with reason. It's not, it's not contradictory. Uh, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It's not irrational. It always starts with reason, we see. In fact, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, do you remember the time where this man Nathaniel comes to Jesus? He's brought to Jesus, and he's a real skeptic, and he's kind of like, I don't know, can anything good come, you know, from Nazareth? And and Jesus says, I saw you when you were sitting underneath the fig tree. And his response is like, Oh my goodness, you're the Messiah. And Jesus almost criticizes him for believing too fast. He goes, Well, slow down, take it easy. That's all it takes. <laughs> he's saying, Use your brain. Okay, don't don't be this kind of person who's so easily moved by this or easily moved by that. Christ and his followers have always prized the life of the mind, thinking carefully, weighing options. We think of that passage in the uh, in the book of Acts, this group called the Bereans. They're said to be more noble because they they weighed carefully what the Apostle Paul This is the guy who wrote two thirds of the New Testament. He came to them and they go, very nice story. We're going to first look at the Old Testament and check and weigh it all. And he goes, good job. He didn't say, well, who do you think you are? I'm Paul the Apostle. I'm going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Don't question me. They said, nice, fine. We want to weigh it. We want to evaluate. So the life of the mind is extremely important. It starts with reason. But number two, what we see here that faith starts with reason, life-giving faith moves beyond reason to trust. See, reason points you in the right direction. 
But eventually you have to exercise real trust in that particular direction. Now, some of you are thinking, aha, okay, I knew it. I knew you were going to go there. Um, so you can't prove Christianity. You, you, you absolutely can't prove this. Uh, you can't prove there's God. And until you absolutely prove it, you know, airtight argument, there's absolutely no way that I would, that I would give my life to that or, or believe. It. Well, let me give you a, kind of a response. If you're looking for demonstrative proof, airtight kind of arguments, you will never be able to prove anything, absolutely anything, whether it be Christianity or that the goodwill of, of your friend, who you've, your oldest and longest friend, you won't be able to give sort of some sort of hard, absolute proof that they're not really just you know, kind of manipulating you for years and then someday they're going to con you out of all your money or something. You can't even prove, philosophers would tell you, the external world. You can't prove matter. Haven't you ever seen The Matrix? <laughs> Philosophers have been talking about this for years. If you go to this place of saying, I will only believe something that I have absolute, hardcore, airtight argument proof for, they will say, well, then you've, you fall into this idea that you have to assume some things to be true. What if you're just a brain in a vat? Somewhere, And there's some mad scientist who's kind of programming your brain to have all of these memories, but none of them are real. And your five senses right now aren't really real. The mad scientist is just programming. You can't prove that that's not true in any way. But of course, you would say, well, there's no good reason to believe that exactly. So we don't go on absolute proof. We go on what we have good reason or best argument for. We go what we have the best reason or thing to believe in this way. See, the very best of relationships that you have, you never look for absolute, definitive, airtight, uh, demonstrable proof. Instead, you weigh the data. Can I trust this person? Do I like them? Are they a gossip? Do they seem to be faithful? Are they pretty you know, good? Do they seem to have my best interests in mind? Are they a control freak? Are they a narcissist? You're weighing all this data all the time, hopefully well, and then, and then you make an assessment on everything that you have that's there. But you can never prove it. Think about this. You can never prove, is this the right person to marry? Can you prove that? Well, you could check the references. You could check the references, references. You could check the references, references, references. But you can, you can never prove it. Eventually, now, it's re you have to make a good reasonable decision, a wise decision, but then you place trust in that very best direction. So here's the point. To say, well, I'll trust Jesus once I've absolutely, completely proved it is a little disingenuous. Because you and I never do that in any other area of our life. Especially a relationship. And Christianity purports to be a relationship. So we never do it anywhere else. So life giving faith, it does start with reason, but, but, but it has to move beyond reason to trust. Look at the verse of the text here. Verse, verse 47, we see this guy coming to Jesus and, and he begs him to come with him to heal his son who is close to death. The word that's used here for son isn't just child or boy. It's a diminutive word. It's, it's, uh, it would be like saying, my baby. My little, my precious little one. This, this is a father in agony and he's coming to Jesus and he's asking him to come with him. Um, now, look at Jesus' response. Verse 50, Jesus says, go, your son will live. Now, you and I read that and we think, oh, that's a good response. 
right? We think that because we know the end of the story. No, it's not. That's a terrible response. This is a terrible response. This is a this is kind of a test. Do you know why? Because see, the man's asking, will you please come with me? See, all people know to this point, as far as how miracles work, is that they're done by the person who does the miracle having to be there, having to go to be present. The greatest miracle worker in the Bible, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament up to this point, is Elijah and Elisha. And you see this idea that Elisha's present. You know, he, he stretches his body out over someone or he puts his hand or he, or he takes his, his cloak or, or he takes his staff. But it's the idea of physical presence is the way that a miracle is done. See, Jesus is making a claim that had to have been astounding. Here He says, I'm not going with you. I can heal with a word. See, here's, here's how you and I work. I say, uh, or you say, let there be a house. And then I've got to go build the house, right? Or I've got to pay someone. I've got to pay someone to do it. But God says, like in the very beginning, let there be light. And it's it's done. His word and his deed are the same thing. His word is the word of power. So for Jesus to claim that this godlike power, he's he's pressing the man to trust him for being more than just. A miracle worker. The rest of the verse, verse 15 says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now, this, this is just the beginning. He doesn't, he doesn't fully believe in Jesus yet. This is, there's sort of stages that the man goes through here. But what's going on here? See, Jesus is moving the man from, from mere uh, intellectual, rational assent or recognition. Yes, I, I recognize that you have the power to do this. To personal trust. From, from seeing Jesus as kind of a miracle worker, you know, like, like Miracle Max, remember uh, the Princess Bride, you know, or Gandalf or something like that. Just, uh, just seeing him as, oh yeah, you're a miracle worker, to actually saying, you're the Messiah. It's not just what you can do, what you can produce, but actually, you are the Messiah. Now he's not just believing about Jesus, he's actually believing Jesus. He, he, he's moving to life giving faith where he actually trusts in his life. Take a look at this real quick uh, two-minute video up here on the screen. Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of the tightrope, 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. His act will be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple crossing using a balancing pole. Then he will throw away the pole and amaze the onlookers. On one occasion, he crossed the tightrope on stilts. Another time, he stopped. Another time, he stopped. Okay, we'll cut it. You want to know what happened to him? He fell and died. No, I'm kidding. He didn't fall and die. That would be a horrible end of the story, wouldn't it? Uh, Charles Blondin, this is a guy who walked 
walked across the tire rope across you know, Niagara Falls multiple times. He, one time he did it on stilts. He walked across on stilts. One time he went out there. It started to show that in the video. He actually cooked an omelet out of the middle, and then he, and then he ate the omelet. Um, one of my favorite times is that he actually went out there with a chair, and he didn't put two legs on the tightrope. He, he put one leg of the chair on the tightrope, and he actually got up on the chair. And he just did all these amazing things. One time he got a, he got a wheelbarrow, and he walked across and back with a wheelbarrow, and then he put a bunch of, like, sacks of potatoes in there, you know, a couple hundred pounds, walked across and came back. And, and, and the story goes, uh, you know, this is purported to be true. I don't, I don't think it's false, but it's one of these great preacher stories anyway. He uh, he gets back and he says he says how many how many of you think that I could put a person in here and walk across and oh absolutely yeah absolutely totally you could do it really think I do that okay who wants to go first and no 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 so here's here's the thing how is it that that, uh, that this this guy would say how many of you think I could do it and they go oh totally absolutely I I absolutely think you can do it but then when he asked him do you want to and the response was no no no. It's, it's one thing to believe something rationally. Here's the point. It's one thing to believe something. And you can absolutely believe. You, you can believe with 100% of your, of your rational mind. Fully, fully convinced and completely convinced that the man could go across. But it's another thing to trust that person with your life. And that's the, that's the difference here between being a Christian just in name and then really trusting God with the rest of of your life, meaning acting as though what you believe is true. That's that's the difference there. See, I might say <clears throat> I'm completely convinced by Christianity, but what if I'm living as though money is the only thing? Money drives me. Money is what I'm worrying about. If I were to take a test throughout my day, 80% of my day I'm thinking about finances and money, and I'm worried and I'm concerned and that's what's really driving me. I might say I believe in Christianity, but, but this is really what my life is centered around. Or how many people say, well, I believe in Christianity, but uh, you know, they've blown up their lives because there was something going on in their life that was in secret that they thought would never come out, and then it, and then it comes out, and then, and then their life blows up. And if you were to ask them, well, didn't you believe that God can see you? I mean, God, there's nothing secret. You can't do anything secret. God sees. They would go, yeah. So what, what, what's it? Well, I would have never made the connection between what I'm claiming to be true and what I actually believe to be true. So many of us live this way where we say, oh, absolutely. I give mental assent to these things and yet I live as though they're completely false. I got an email uh, this last week from someone, um, from a young man. I don't, I don't know who the person is, but he gave me some details and he, uh, he's in his, he's in his thirties. And uh, he said that he's he's moved to this area here just a few years ago, and um, he he was hoping to he's a he's a single man. He was hoping to find someone to meet and to marry. And and he said, um, I, I trusted God all this time that that I'd find some. He said, I, I I prayed for a wife. I modeled myself after Jesus. Jesus. He said I, I was constantly praying that God would bring someone into my life, but he said I was just rejected. I was just pushed to the side. I never, I never really could, you know, date anyone or get involved in any relationships. And he said, I, I modeled myself like a man, like Jesus did in the Bible. He said, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And he said, uh, you know, so now I'm moving away, and this time here, it's all wasted. Uh, and so I've wasted my time here. 
And one of the last statements he made was, I've, I've trusted God, um, but God broke my trust. So he said, I don't even think there's a God anymore. Now, again, as much as I want to sit down and just listen and care for and, and, and love on this person in a pastoral way, I also want to say to him, don't you say, you didn't trust God unconditionally. You, you made a bargain. He said, God, I will trust you if you give me what I want. If you don't, forget it. But I trust you unconditionally. No, that, that's not unconditional trust. But see, how many of us live in this way where we say, God, and we get to points where we're just, you know, we think, man, this isn't, this isn't right. Something's wrong. God, you haven't been faithful. Why? Because you haven't done something. You haven't come through in this way. You, you haven't done what I wanted you to do. And it's just as ridiculous as this statement. But it doesn't feel ridiculous when it's my issue. But it's just as true. I'm saying, God, I trust you so long as you do what I want in some way or another. Jesus is telling us that life-giving faith comes not just when we believe with our minds, kind of rational assent, but when you actually entrust your life. And I would even say your hoped-for life. The things that you want to happen to you, Physically, relationally, financially, emotionally, all those things. If you don't entrust him with that, you're not trusting him. If I don't entrust him with that, with what I want to happen, I'm not really trusting him. And so there are stages here of faith. So first of all, we see the man, he trusts Jesus when he leaves, right? Remember, he says he took Jesus at his word and he left. So there's a trust level there in who Jesus is. But, uh, but secondly, it grows. It says he trusted him more when he hears that his son is healed, right? But then there's even a third phase. He finds out the time at which he was healed. He says, okay, he puts it together. Wait a minute, one o'clock. That's the exact time that Jesus said your son will be healed. And that's what pushes him over the, over the line here. That's what pushes him over onto the edge of actually life-giving faith in Jesus. Number three in your outlines there. Life-giving faith grows beautifully and pure the same way gold grows beautifully and pure. And how's that? furnace that's how gold does notice in the story the man wants jesus to go with him it would have been so reassuring right and he could have done it he could just sure i'll go with you i'll go to i'll go to capernaum capernaum to galilee is about 20 miles okay that's about a full full day's walk everyone walked in this day that must have been the longest walk this man ever took, don't you think? Those 20 miles. Jesus, think about this. Jesus could have lightened his heart. He could have lightened his load. He could have just gone with him. But see, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus knows when you need smelling sauce, and he knows when you need a kiss. He knows, he knows when you need to be... <clears throat> Assured like this, he could have assured him here. And he knows when you need to take a 20 mile walk, feeling absolutely sick to your stomach. But Jesus knew that 20 mile walk was the only way for this guy to reach a place where he and his whole family would have a dynamic, personal, trusting, life giving relationship with God through Christ. He knows exactly what it'll take. We talked about that a few weeks ago this idea that Jesus always knows, he's, he's the perfect counselor. Don't think you know what's best. 
And you guys, that's the hardest thing because I'm, I'm convinced I know what's best. And I try to tell God, I'm like, let me, let me kind of play out for you. God, if you just do this and if it worked out like that, I know what would be best. But I can't think I know what's best. We said earlier that that life-giving faith starts, you know, starts with the mind. It starts with reason. It starts with rationality with your brain. I said I'd come back to that. Let me make one comment here that kind of fits into here probably better. This is why that is so important. I've talked to people. And I've said, are you a Christian? They go, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. I go, well, you know, why? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Okay, but like, why are you a Christian? I mean, you know, well, I mean, my whole family is Christian. And I say, okay, but why do you believe? Why do you believe it? And they say, I just, you know, my family always says. And I say, so you've never really engaged your mind. You've never really thought it out. You've never really decided if it's true or not. Because, see, at some point in your life, Christianity is going to not seem true. That's just reality. At some point, Christianity is going to not seem true. You're going to go through a lot of really hard, difficult times. That's that furnace idea at that point if your mind has not been engaged your faith will likely blow away so if you're if you're even at that place now let me just encourage you begin the process it's a process it's a journey it's a road it's not a door begin that process of starting to know what you believe and why you believe it engage your mind fortify your mind number four life-giving faith saves by its object, not by its quality. Or you could say not by its intensity. When this man turned away to go home, do do you think he was filled with high spirits? I mean, do you think this, it says he took Jesus at his word, yes. But do you think when he turned inwardly, do you think he said, I know my son will live. I'm, I'm, I'm claiming my healing. I have no doubt in my heart. I doubt it. I highly doubt it he probably went back just so scared and yet this scared little doubt-filled faith led to eternal life that was the start here's why it's the object of your faith not the strength of your faith that saves you if i were think about if i were to have like a chair up here Okay, if I were to have a chair up on stage, and this chair is just lousy, it's weak, and I have huge faith that it's going to hold me up, and I, and I sit down, at, or, or, and I go crash into the ground, and you all laugh at me. Or, or if I have like a really, really strong chair, and I've got weak faith, oh, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it'll hold me, I just don't think I can, I don't know, I don't know I'm just not sure. And I kind of real slowly sit down, and, and it holds me. <clears throat> See, whether I sit in the chair or whether I fall to the ground, how much does it have to do with the strength of my faith? Zero. Absolutely. It depends on the strength of the object of my faith. Let's see. You you might be so filled with doubts and fears, but how much faith do you need for the chair to hold you up? Just enough to sit in it. That's it. Just enough to transfer your weight from your feet to the chair. How much faith did this guy need to have to have eternal life? Just enough to go home. Just enough to turn around. Just enough to start, start walking. But he, he could have had all kinds of fears and doubts. Do, do you see how comforting this is, though? This, this is hugely comforting. You don't have to have perfectly wonderful faith. It wasn't his faith that saved his son. It was Jesus who saved him. And his faith just connected with that power. 
Mark 9, there's this passage, a lot of you guys will probably know it, where um, Jesus is also asked by another man, would you, he says, would you please heal my son? The man comes and heal my son. And Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And this guy's response, I love it because it's so accurate to mine. He goes, I'm trying to believe, but help my unbelief. Don't you love that? I'm trying, but help my unbelief. And Jesus goes, that's belief. That works. See, to say to Jesus, I don't know if I have faith. Help me. That's faith. To say to Jesus, I don't know. I'm filled with doubt. I don't know if I can believe. That's belief. That's what Jesus called mustard seed faith or belief. Number five, last one. Life-giving faith comes to love Jesus for who he is, not for the benefits that you get. Uh, Verse 48, Jesus has this kind of odd response you know did you come heal my son the man asks and and jesus says unless you people he uses the plural word there unless you people see signs and wonders jesus told them you will never believe see jesus is saying i want you to love me for who i am not for the benefits that that you might get now think about this when you first fall in love you all have to admit this when you first fall in love with the person um you fall in love with the person for the things really that, that it gives you. You know, so when you say, I like how you look, well, what you're really saying is, it, you know, it gives me self-esteem when someone who looks like you is seen with someone like me, right? I mean, that's really what you're saying. Or if you say, oh, I love what a hardworking person you are. We say, well, wouldn't it be nice to be married to someone with a good career, you know, and a good job, and they've got finances. So in the beginning of every single relationship, a love relationship, in the beginning, what, what makes the person attractive are the things that bring you benefits. That's just true. That's always, it's, it's, it's that way in friendships usually too. But in the end, when love grows strong, you've got to get past that. You've got to get to the place where you just love them for who they are. If you're in love with someone and uh, you, know, you have a financial reversal and they drop you, how do you feel? Oh. I I feel exploited, right? You'd say, they they didn't love me for me. They just loved me for what I had. Yeah, exactly. That's why that's not true love. So we have to get to the place in life where, where we're not up and down. We're not living on this roller coaster in our faith with God where as long as God's doing what I want him to do or my life's turning out the way I want it to turn out, then I'm great. I'm on cloud nine. But where we love him for the sheer beauty of of who he is. Do you know the kind of poise that that gives you in life? You know the kind of balance, the kind of ballast that that gives you in life? <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, you guys all know that. During his his, his life, he, he wrote numerous letters to people. He corresponded with people who, who wrote him counseling pastoral questions all the time. You know, I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. And Walter Hooper, who is, was his secretary and has compiled a lot of his letters, estimates that Lewis wrote 50,000 50, handwritten letters, which is uh, 3,800 pages worth during his lifetime. And this is just during his lifetime as a Christian, the second half of his life, two people in response to their questions. And in, in one of his books, which is just a compilation of his letters. Lewis wrote a letter on December 23rd, 1950, and he wrote it in response to a man named Sheldon Vanaken. And he, he wrote Lewis 
asking him why there aren't more demonstrative proofs for Christianity. He was wrestling with this Jesus who he claims to be and all this sort of thing. And, and um, wh- why is there only reasonable probability? Why can't I have you know, these hard demonstrative proofs of Christianity? Let me read you some of the words just that I kind of selected out of this one letter that Lewis writes back. He said, as to why God doesn't make it demonstrably clear, are we sure that God is even interested in that kind of a theist? Meaning, is that all God wants is people who answer a question right? Like, yeah, I think there's a God. No, I, no, I, I don't think there is. Someone who's just compelled by logical assent to a conclusive answer. And he said, I want for my friend a trust in my good faith without demonstrative proof. And he says, it wouldn't be confidence in our friendship at all if he waited for rigorous proof. And he says, the fairy tales embody this same truth. He said, Othello believed in, uh, in, in his uh, lover's innocence when it was proven, but it was too late. Lear believed in Cordella's love when it was proved, but it was too late. And then Lewis finally goes on to close and he says, maybe, maybe God giving us you know, what he calls reasonable probability. I love this. Listen to this kind of illustration here. Maybe God doing it like this instead of giving us the airtight argument is like the disguised prince in a fairy tale who wins the heroine's love before she knows he is anything more than a woodcutter. What would be just a bribe if it came first had better come last, he said. What if... What if that's how it is? It's more like the, the man, the prince, who gets the heroine to fall in love with him when she thinks that he is merely a woodcutter. In Isaiah 53, in the Old Testament, before Christ had ever come onto the scene, before the second person of the Trinity had become the incarnate Jesus, Isaiah, looking forward, speaking prophetically about who Jesus would be, Speaking of the Messiah, of the disguised lover who would come for his bride, the prince who would come for the heroine, wrote this in Isaiah 53, 1. He grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He came as a woodcutter. Actually, he came as a carpenter. And then Isaiah finished by saying he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. See, when you see that, I would suggest when you see that what Christ has done for you on the cross your trust in him, which which starts out with thinking, starts out with really good, clear thinking. It, 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 it moves on to the kind of trust that where you act in such a way that your life, your actions, your relationships actually depend upon him being true. And your faith in that person grows beautifully and pure in a furnace. And then you find yourself loving God. For the mere pleasure of being with him. That's what life-giving faith grows into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
thank you that faith is a gift. Yes, we know that faith is a gift from you. And Lord, each one of us is at such a different place. And, and, and it's so easy to, wherever we are, given the situations and circumstances that I'm in, whether I've created them or other people have, God, to feel riddled with doubt, to have questions. And Lord, I pray that, that you would remove any condemnation from any person who stands at that place, who, who lives, goes throughout their week feeling condemned or shameful because maybe they're riddled with doubts and questions. Thank you, God, that when we simply say, God, I'm trying to believe, but I can't believe, you tell us that's belief. When we say, God, I'm trying to have faith, but help my lack of faith, it's so weak, you say that's faith. Lord, I pray that we would hear your spirit clear this week that the voice of the spirit just with clarion clarity would speak to our hearts at those times God when the enemy would try to condemn us or heap shame upon us because of where we're at and Lord I pray that you would build our faith God that we would find ourselves in places expanding trusting you we would take a really scary little step in something you're calling us to do maybe it's acting with integrity in some scenario in our life. Maybe it's stepping out in some way that you're calling us to. Whatever it is, God, may we take that scary, tiny little step and may we find the chair of Christ solid, trustworthy as we transfer our weight to Him. God, as we encounter the living Christ today, tonight, this week, would you, would you turn our hearts away from the things that, that enslave us that stunt our lives and turn our hearts and worship toward Him. God, we love You so much. Thank You for this community. God, thank You for a community of people who are authentic, who, who don't put on any pretense. Help us not to walk in pride, God, but just to walk in authentic humility. Help us to be aware. Thank You, God, that, that these, are, these are people who are aware of the people sitting next to them. That they're people who care about others as you do. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your big story, including us and yours. God, we pray this for your glory, for our joy, which is to know you, God. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, you guys, for being here tonight. Thanks for being a part of Wednesday Night Community. Um, grab some snacks. Go get your kids. Let them come back and finish off the table. Our prayer team is going to be up front here. If, if you would like prayer, we would just love to pray with you this evening. Love you guys and hope to see you next, next Wednesday.